I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James. I seldomly do seasonal preaching. I will do something on Christmas Day. I will not preach from James on Christmas Day, but for the most part I try to uh, stay with uh, the text. And we are in James chapter 1. The portion or the pericope that we are in is 19 through to 27. And this morning our attention will be on 22, verse 22 through to 25. If you know me by now, I don't do uh, well with large portions. But since James illustrates his point, I will take that as the sermon illustration and just try to emphasize his point in that illustration Uh, So, Lord willing, we are able to finish this section uh, this morning. I want to speak to you about the expectation of the new covenant. What does God expect of those who come to saving faith? Saving faith, that is, God-enabled belief always behaves in a distinct way. It is not like nominal faith. That is okay to appear at Christmas or Easter. Saving faith is a consistent growing faith. The true test of one's profession is not the profession. It's not what you say about Christ. It's not what you say, what you believe about Christ. The true true test of our profession is our conduct also known as the fruits of righteousness, also known as good works. How we live is what God is after. True faith always demonstrates itself. An organism that is alive duplicates itself. It grows. You've, if you marry, duplicated yourself. If you have kids, you have life in you, and so your kids have life in them. Faith granted by God is never inactive, which means it is never dead. Because God gives living faith. By implication, if it is living faith, then the one who possesses the living faith should then be what? Alive. It may not always run at full stream, may not be bursting at the seams, but there are signs of life. We find ourselves in this second division of the book, the demonstration of faith. The first division I said to you was chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 18 which dealt with faith being tested and tried. True faith is always tested. True faith always perseveres. That's his point. True faith results in endurance or steadfastness, James says in verse 3 and 4. It produces steadfastness. And steadfastness runs its entire course. Because a genuine believer stays the course, never throws in the towel, never gives up. God tests 
our faith to showcase the genuineness of the faith that he has given, not so that he may figure out if you are his, but to demonstrate that the faith you are given is true. James moves from trials, from verse 1 through to verse uh, um, 18, trials and temptation in the believer's life to God's saving work in the believer's life found in verse 18. Now if that is true, if you are saved and your faith is tested and it, it proves itself to be faithful and enduring, then there must be visible fruits. The interesting thing is that while salvation is a tremendous theological truth that reverberates throughout this entire book, what is interesting is that the rock-solid dependence and emphasis is always on Scripture. If you are saved, then there is an affinity and a love and a desire for Scripture because Scripture is the means through which God saves and then that Scripture directs and drives your obedience. James says that a believer has been brought forth by the word of truth. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth, and this is the means, by the word of truth. It is the truth that shapes and directs the child of God into faithful obedience. The truth that is firmly implanted as a guide and a testimony to the saint Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And that doesn't mean that believers need to be saved. They are saved and they will be saved is his point. That if it's true of you that you have been saved, if you receive the word and don't reject the word, the word that has been planted then in your heart, God gives a testimony of the word that is being preached externally and you receive it with joy and thanksgiving and meekness and humility. You do not reject it, which means you are then a child of God. In other words, those who have been born by the truth have a desire to obey the truth. This is the testimony of Scripture. Jesus says that those who are his true friends, take note of this, John 15, 14, are those who do the truth. Want to be a friend of Jesus? Then you'll be doing the truth. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. No options. That's the reality. That is a testimony and the consistent testimony of those who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 24 says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus equates his word with the Father's word, saying that all that I am saying does not come from me, but comes from the Father. Therefore, if you obey me, you also obey the Father. 1 John 2, 3 says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's an ongoing reality. Whoever says, I know him, that's the profession. Oh, I know him. I have a personal relationship with him. I've come to know him. I am with him. I love Jesus. I may not like the church, but I love Jesus. I don't have to go to church because I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. If that is true, John says, but does not keep my commandments. He's a lie and the truth is not in him. 
Oh, okay, so you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, you would love my children. And you would love my church, love the brethren. And if you are faithful to me, it means that you are faithful to that command. And if you are not faithful to that command, what does it say about you? You don't really know me. I'm I'm so surprised how believers, I should not be surprised, how quote-unquote so-called believers are so comfortable in saying that, oh no, I have my walk with Jesus. I don't need to go to your church. I don't need to be in church because it's my own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, really? Where does Jesus say that you have a personal relationship with him? When God called you, you are called into his body, which is the what? Church. You want to be an island? You can be an island, but you're not part of Jesus Christ. Whoever keeps his word, verse 5, in him truly the love of God has been perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. The keeping of the word is a true sign that you've been saved by the word. 1 John 3, 10. But this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one that does not love his brother. Wow. So you live in a way that you want to, away from God, do not do righteousness, and you do not love the brothers. You may not live as the wicked people, but you don't love church, you don't love God's people. Guess what? This is what John says. You don't know him. Those who do not love the brothers, those who live unrighteously, are children of the devil. That is significant of who they are, characteristic of who they are. Those who know God, those who love Jesus, are those who love his people and live righteously. This idea of practical righteousness, living in a way that pleases God, is what we looked at last week. It is the portion of those who have received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In order for us to stand before God and to be acceptable before God, He has to take His Son's righteousness and transfer it to us, impute it to us. He has to take our sin and give it to Jesus. That divine uh, um, transference has taken place at the cross of Calvary. Without that imputed righteousness, we can never live righteously. So James is talking about the practical implication of that imputed righteousness. Once you have been saved, God takes the righteousness of Christ, it becomes yours, or at the point of being saved, I should say. And then from that moment on, you walk in accordance with the will of God. What we will see in our passage today is that it is not enough to claim to be saved. This is going to be a hard sermon for those of you who are comfortable sitting at home and doing nothing. Those of you who are lazy Christians, comfortable in not serving God's people. Those of you who are unwilling to commit to a local assembly. It's going to be hard for you to hear. Those of you who have been in this church and have not committed to this church, not willing to love God's people, this sermon is aimed at you. It is not enough to say, good sermon, Peter, Don, or Denver. It's not enough. If you don't do anything about it, God doesn't care if you think it was a good sermon. 
God is not interested in your profession. But he wants to see, let me put it this way. He's not interested in your profession if there's no tangible evidence of saving faith. See, a proper response to the word in the new covenant is faithful obedience to the word. You say you love the word? Prove it. Don't tell me, oh, 50 years ago, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, 2 years ago, I came to Jesus Christ and I love him. But you don't obey the word. Spurgeon said, don't tell me you're a child of God. Show me you're a child of God. One guy walked up to him once and said, um, I became, okay, I'm going to mess it up, so I'm going to skip that. I had it in my mind and then it, it jumped out. I mentioned last week that the fundamental heart of this passage is the word of God, mentioned in verse 18, the word of truth, mentioned in verse 21, the implanted word, mentioned in verse 22, the word in 23, the word in 20. Um, four in an analogy um, uh, 23 the mirror in verse 25 the perfect law the word of God is central to the believer's life while we are looking at the practical implications of soteriology that is God's sovereign work in salvation while we are looking at the impact of that God's monogistic work of saving undeserving sinners that is verse 18, we are dealing with the practical aspects that relates to that. James, however, never withdraws his hand on the theological truth. He's always reaching back to verse 18. If that is true, then this will be also. The stabilizing force in the believer's life is the word of truth. So James provides the most practical truths that flows from this deep theological truth. There is one point that I have. A believer is both a hearer and a doer. Thus, anything else is self-deception. That's the point. A believer hears and does. If you major on either one, if you're just a hearer, or you're trying to work your way to God, you self-deceived. That's it. Hearing implies doing, or we are deceived. Look at verse 22. Let me take some time and read from 19, because it flows. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God or the righteousness that pleases God or God's righteousness, not imputed, but practical living. Therefore, if that is true, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Do not reject the word if it's been implanted, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into 
the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The first reality that I want to highlight here is that true faith responds to the word of truth. Verse 22, there's a response that is expected. There's a response that is given. The word must filter down to life. It must first change the heart and then it will affect and direct the hands and feet. One author says that those who hear much must do much. The danger comes when we hear and we refuse to do. This does not mean that believers will always be successful in the application of the truth. You know that is true just as well as I. But this speaks of a habitual pattern of life. They ordinarily hear and do. This is who they are characteristically. On the opposite side of the spectrum, it is those who love to hear but don't want to do anything. I think the passage is pretty clear. Verse 22 is self-explanatory. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. A person who never does, who never acts upon the truth, who's only comfortable in hearing the truth, that is the person in view here. But here, all he says is that hearing the truth must filter down to the application or the appropriation of that truth. The word verse begins with but in our translations. You may have a different translation. It is literally the word now. Um, Even though your translation says but, you can see that there's no contrast. There's no difference between the person he speaks before and the person he speaks about after. Because the one receiving the word with meekness is the same one who's responsible to do the word. It's the same person. So there's no contrast, even though our translation says, but but it is better translation, translated now. Now in addition to receiving this word, there must be an ongoing habitual pattern of life that demonstrates that you are a doer of the word. So we're still talking about the believer's response. So again, no contrast. So you can circle that word and write there, and now, or now then, uh, or so now, that's all okay. It's all plausible options for the translation. So James gives this command, and there's a little bit of force lost in the English translation. It says, be doers of the word. Now be doers of the word. Let me give you my translation. I don't know if I've seen it anywhere else. Now you must be doers. Or, now you must be becoming doers. Or, now you are to be doers. Different emphasis, right? There's no options in that. There's no, oh, I get to choose to be a doer. Be doer sounds like, mm, this is something that you can or cannot do. Just be this when you, when you want to. No. It's must be. There is no options. So these translations that I have come up with, it's not inspired. 
but it captures the idea or the force of the verbal tense here. We don't have an option about doing the word. We must become doers of the word. There's a plural implied here or included here, and that means it's directed to all the saints, all who are included in my beloved brothers in verse 19. All of you, you're all, 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 everyone who is Christian. Become doers. This means that a saint ought to become consistently an applier of the word. Our culture is big on application, Christian culture. We want to hear application. What does James say? Apply the word. Be doers of the word. Apply the word. Go ahead. Why does he say that? Because the word in itself, by itself, applies itself. It tells you what to do. Because it gives you the expected reality. This is what James is explaining. If you have been changed in verse 18, if you are receiving the word in verse 21, then you must what? Do it. It's that simple. Live by it. New covenant saints are those who have experienced the new life by means of the word. They are to be the doers of the word. It is important to note the sequence here. Verse 18 is logically preceding verse 22, which means salvation precedes what? Works. He says, workers of the word. Become those who do the word. You don't do the word to become saved by the word. You do the word because you are what? Saved by the word. Here's the danger in thinking that verse 22 implies that we are able to get to God by means of our working. And there are those that believe that. If we say then that our actions and our works somehow changes our lives to such a degree that we are able to be right with God, then we are saying that God cooperates with us in our salvation of ourselves as we work our way to God. Does it make sense? If we are saving ourselves, then God is working with us. But if God, in verse 18, monogistically, sovereignly, freely, by himself, saves, then he's got the demand, right? If I'm saving myself, then I can choose how I want to live, because I am the Savior. But that's not what we, we want to say, but that's what it means. Salvation, in verse 18, flows down to verse 21, which results... In verse 22. Saved by the word means receiving the word, which results in what? Doing the word. I don't like the idea that Christians become doers. James is here describing the characteristic behavior or the nature of the believer. He's not saying become as in you've got a choice sometime down the line to become a doer of the word. This is who you are. This is what you should be. This is not an occasional activity. This is what we must be. Why do I say this? 
Well, the expectation is set in the Old Testament, in the promise of the new covenant. Turn to Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> I've been hinting at this for, for weeks now. Look at verse 25. We can clearly make a distinction between being saved and doing the works. Look at verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. Who's the one saving? It is God. I will cleanse you. I will provide the salvation. 26. I will give you a new heart. Take note of that. And a new spirit. I will put within you. Who's doing the work? It is God. I will provide a heart and a spirit that is synonymous of the new man. I am the one that's going to put it within you. You're not working your way to me. I'm giving it to you. I'm the one doing it. Notice what he says. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Interesting. Why heart of flesh? I think it's obvious, right? Stones can't respond. Ever kicked a stone? Did it cry out to you? What are you doing? Or ouch. The stones don't do that. Because they've got no feelings. They're dead. They, they're just objects. There's no response from stones. Do you get the analogy that um, Ezekiel is making? This is what you are apart from God doing his work in you. You're like a stone. You're like a stone in the, in the dead of winter. You don't feel the cold. You may, be, you may feel cold on the outside, but... You are unresponsive to anything and everything. To you, it doesn't matter whether the sun is shining or whether it's pouring with rain. It doesn't matter to you. Nothing grows on you. Nothing comes from you. Unless God works through you like Moses and you hit the stone and water gushes out of it. A different story. You are dead, in other words. So I need to provide you with something that is able to respond to me. And so I will provide you with a heart, a fleshly heart. Why a fleshly heart? Because the fleshly heart will, be exchange, will exchange or will be, replace the heart of stone, which means now you are able to do what? Respond to him. Do what he says. Hear what he says. A stone does not hear. Besides, it's, my boys and I are watching in the morning. I should say our family is watching. In the mornings we watch evolution, creation um, videos. And it's, it's ridiculous what they believe. That you come from a rock. A rock cannot produce life. Doesn't matter how much you warm it up. Doesn't matter how long you wait. Rock will never produce life. A being that is able to evolve into a human being. Never. Never. I don't care how long you wait. It will never happen. This is an illustration, 
and a prophecy of what God needs to do in our hearts. He will have to change a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Verse 27. This is the important part. Not that the others are not, but this is what I want to relate to. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God has all the work in our salvation. He grants us a heart. He replaces that unresponsive, dead, stone heart with a heart of stone. And he says, I am going to help you even further. I will take my spirit and put it in your spirit because you cannot obey me. It's impossible for you to do what I want. It is impossible for you to please me. And so to aid you, I will give my spirit and I will put my law in you. And take notice of this. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, if I've saved you, I will also produce the results of that salvation. I will also produce in you the signs of that salvation. This is what James is echoing echoing over a couple of verses. Verse 18. It is God who brings us forth of his own will, freely, sovereignly, by his own choice. He brings us forth by the word of truth. And as a result of that, we receive the implanted word and we do the word. James knows that he's connecting to Old Testament prophecy because he knows what the expectation is from the Old Testament prophecy concerning the new covenant. When God changes lives, he changes it from the inside out. When you want to work your way towards God, you are merely doing external things that will never be able to please God. Paul describes this work this way in Philippians. I think it's 2.13. Let me see. Philippians chapter 2. Yep. Verse 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's he talking about? You're not working or figuring out your salvation. That's generally what people think. He says, no, demonstrate it. Work it out. Why are you able to work it out? Because he tells us, for God is at work in you. The only reason we can work out our salvation, demonstrate our salvation, is because God has worked in us the salvation that we have. And therefore, we can demonstrate the fact that we have been saved. How do I know that? Because Paul tells us, both to will and to work. Both to desire and to do. God provides both the desire to perform his will and the ability to do his will. That's what he means. You cannot please God by yourself. So God aids us. In providing his spirit to us so that we can do the things that pleases him. Look how he ends. For his good pleasure. Not even a believer by himself can please God. 
God has to enable us to please him. He has to work in so we can work out. That's Paul's version of the effect of the new covenant expectation. God works, you demonstrate. If God changes the life, you will display it. What makes us think that we can be saved by our works if we can't even obey his works by ourselves? This is what Jesus expected. Not only those who, 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 do, who hear his word are his disciples, but those who do his word. Not those who walk up to him and say, Oh, what a blessed sermon on the mount. I was so encouraged by that. Not those who come to him and say, Oh, I was so moved in my soul. I was so encouraged by, by your analogies and your pictures. You know what Jesus says? So what? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Because he says, it's not those who hear my words, it is those who do my words that are my disciples. It's not good enough for you to walk up the mount and sit at his feet and say, Lord, I'm listening. He's going to say, so what if you're listening? If you're not doing anything about it, I don't want to hear about you listening. Show me. If you don't do anything, then it doesn't matter how much you enjoyed it. Listen, it's okay to walk up to the pastors and say, good sermon, brother. But I think Peter's going to start saying, so what? What are you going to do about it from now on? Hearing without doing only makes you more accountable. Why do we have this command to become doers? Back to James. It's pretty simple. Be ye doers of the word, verse 22, and not yet as only deceiving yourself. Let me fill in a little bit of historical background here. Where are we in history? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, it says, For if a man wearing a gold ring, fine clothing, comes into your Assembly. That word there is synagogue. Synagogue. You probably want to circle that and write just above it or to the side. Synagogue. Why? Because that's historically significant. Doesn't say in your house. Doesn't say with the saints or in the church. It says synagogue. Think back to those of you who did New Testament survey. When did the synagogues come into being? Have they always been around? No. During and after the Babylonian captivity. What happened in the Babylonian captivity? They came in, they took the Jews from Jerusalem, destroyed a half of the city. The Jews now at this point can't go back to Jerusalem. They cannot go and perform the worship rites that they, they were supposed to do. So instead, they decided to erect synagogues, a place of assembly, literally. It was um, created for a time of prayer, time of fellowship, time of reading and discussing the word. Think about that. Good desire, but fatal results. Why do I say that? They are reading the law. What does the law expect? Application. It's expected to do stuff. When God writes about the sacrifices, what are they supposed to do? 
do the sacrifices. Can they? No. So even though the good desire was to meet together and hear the word, what happened? They were crippled from doing the thing that they wanted to do, which meant they became what? Hearers only. They became experts in the law. They became masters in liturgy and theology. They became the standard of what it means to understand the law. These students of the law were those who were sitting under the, the, the rabbis, learning, knowing, growing and expanding their mind, but not doing. James knows this. They are in that Transition period from Old Testament to New Testament. Transition from no sacrifices to depending on the sacrificial uh, um, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They became masters at hearing the law. You know what Jesus called them? Whitewashed tombs. Generally, these whitewashed tombs was um, some of them were in limestone and. They were easy manipulated. You could make them look beautiful and you could roll the stone away. And what would you find inside? Dead bones. Beautiful on the outside. But stinking bones on the inside. That's his point. There is no life. Why? Because there's no real heart change. Hearing became so ingrained in their lives that they became hard against God. They love to hear the word. James writes to a church that is in a transition period. Many believers at this time, Jews, were in the synagogue and were comfortable with just hearing the word. James says, not so quick. This is not you. This is not how you ought to be. History tells us that the Jews became comfortable in hearing the word of God with no obligation to do it. James provides a strong corrective to those who have been born by God into the new covenant and says, you must be doers. Hence my translation. There is no choice in the matter. This is what James is combating. It is no different today. Church online, convenient church services, Door-to-door breaking of bread services. Have you ever heard that? They, they drive around breaking bread for people. So if you haven't been in church for a year, no, no problem. We'll come to your door. You stay in on your side, make sure you keep a mask on, and we'll break the bread, and we'll give you the wafer, and you break the bread. Door-to-door service with a smile. Streaming has never been so high. In all of history. At least the church's history. There is an increased, I know this is not a word, yearship. But where are they on Sunday? Where are they? Why don't they serve God's people? They engage every theological debate online. Oh, they can topple any argument. But they're never there to serve God's people. 
The same truth applies to bloggers of sound theology and discernment websites. These are the guys that topple the NAC and, and all these charismatic movements. They can settle the argument from behind the, the screen in, in the bathroom, wherever they are. They can fight the war, but they never leave their house to go to God's people. Years of the word. If theology never filters down to hands and feet, then it's nothing more than pharisaical boasting. James has a dual expectation here in verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Both are important. You have to hear. But if it stops there, that's a problem. It's got to filter through activity. You've got to do the word. Wholehearted acceptance of the word must result in active obedience to the word. It's not enough to say, I love the truth. Oh, I love hearing MacArthur preach. This is an important reality. It's repeated throughout the New Testament. James, four times in this book, be doers of the word. In Romans chapter 2, 13, I believe, Paul says, doers of the law. We have to be those who obey God. But hearing only is not only dangerous, but it can have disastrous results. Don't take my word for it. Look at James. Look at the last part of verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. The danger of being a hearer only is that you are self-deceived. The repetition of this word should perk our ears. He speaks about a hearer quite often, but it's interesting that it's not the same word used in verse 19. There, if you remember, I said the hearer there is those who hear and do, those who, who hear the word and is willing to respond to the word. The word hear is pretty interesting. It's used of a pupil. One who is an attendant in a lecture. One who is an auditor. Hmm. An auditor. Uh, not an auditor in a financial term, because my wife would, would correct me on that. But an auditor in an academic uh, sense. One who goes and sits through the lec- uh, listens to the lectures and he says, hmm, interesting point, let me write that one down. Oh, interesting point, let me write that one down. Exam, oh, I'll just skip it there. I'll, I'll just skip that. Quiz, oh, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. Nothing really sinks in. I see a lot of chuckling for auditors. We do the same with church. Oh, I'm just auditing church. That's why I go. Because, yeah, man, this guy's man, he makes really good points, and he just jot it down. What are you doing about it? No, 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 it's not for me. It's not for me. Obedient to the word? No, no, no. I don't need to do that. I'm just here to hear. There's no filtering of the information down to the hands and to the feet. Why? They don't have to. They're auditors. They're only there to perk their ears, to inform their minds, but not change their hearts. James says, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't work. You are not allowed to be an auditor, not in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't get to sign up and say, I don't really want to do the exam." You are 
in the exam if you are a believer. That's the point. That's why you go through trials. Now for those of you who want to sign up <laughs> to Berean and wants to be auditors, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So then, if you hear and do, it illustrates that you will have a changed heart. If you hear only, there's concern. There's reason for concern. You come on Sunday and say, Pastor, I really enjoyed what you said last Sunday. But then Monday you went to, to work and all, all the demons jumped out. Or maybe you went home on Sunday and your wife didn't recognize you. Or your husband doesn't know you. Because you were such an angel in church. He was such a goody two-shoe. He said all the right things and it seemed like, oh my word, uh, the Lord is changing his heart and then he gets home. And nothing's changed. Yet it's only they add to their deception. They know much. The interesting thing, and I think it's MacArthur, I don't know where I read it, but one of the guys said that the word has, was used in ancient time of a, a mathematical miscalculation. When you make a gross miscalculation in your estimation of reality, that is what it is. You think your facts add up. And it does in your mind, uh, you know what, all I need to do is for once a year go to church on a Sunday. That's enough, as long as they see me once a year. And your math makes sense because one plus one equals zero in your mind. And so you only come when you feel like coming. You know what James says? You have bamboozled yourself. Look at the term. You are self-deceived. That is a very strong, emphatic way of saying it because the verb itself implies you're doing it to yourself. And then he adds the reflexive pronoun, yourselves. That's a dangerous place to be in. This deception is expressed emphatically. There's two elements that I want to highlight here. First, you either cause your own deception or are participating in your own deception. And secondly, it is intensified. Sorry, no, that makes no sense. The, the second part is that you participate in your deception. You cause your own deception or you participate in your own deception. And both are very close. You cause it because you are participating in your own deception. Or you participate in your own deception because you are causing your own deception. There is an ongoing self-deceiving work that is taking place. What does it mean? Well, first of all, I think it's a refusal to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to go there because my time is up. Luke chapter 6, 46. Um, Jesus says, "Let let me explain what it means to be a follower of mine. Don't say, Lord, Lord, and you don't do my word. This is the person that knows me, that rightly calls me Lord, Lord. He is like a man that builds his house upon a rock. When the storm comes, what happens to him? His house remains, right? doesn't fall away. Why? Because his profession in the Lord is solid. It's like a rock. It's 
not vaporous. It's not on shaky soil. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but doesn't do his word, when the storm comes, what happens to them? The house falls away. Because their foundation is not solid. It is not sound. To suggest that we know the Lord, but never do what the Lord says, is to be self-deceived. How many times have you heard of people going for deliverance services? Do they still do that? I don't know if they do that anymore. How many times do they have, let me raise up your hand and pray for you. How many times have we not participated in that when, before the Lord changed our hearts? I want to be changed. And every time there's a going up for a renewal, we want the refreshing. Why? Why do people desire that? Because they know that they haven't changed. Listen, if there's no obedience to the truth, there's probably no salvation by means of the truth. This is the danger of hearing only. Okay. Let me explain the analogy, verse 23 and 24, quickly. James says that you are self-deceived. And then he goes ahead and explains what it means to be self-deceived. When you bank on what you see about yourself to be true and don't do anything about it, that is being self-deceived. Look at the analogy. For if anyone is a year of the word, there is a building up of the analogy and not a doer. Here it is. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And then he doesn't tell you what happens. And he goes to the next line and he repeats it. For he looks at himself. And then there's an anticlimax. And he goes away. What? You build us up to think that something significant is going to happen. And then he walks away. But then he goes further and says, and at once forgets what he was like. Understand that they didn't have mirrors like we had. They had polished brass, sometimes silver, and the rich had polished gold. You can't see your face. Have you ever polished your ring and, or, or your mom's brass and ever looked at your face in it? You look like E.T. You can't really see yourself in, in, in perfect form. I think that's part of the analogy. So something then has to be drastically wrong. So he goes and he sees his natural face, literally the face of his birth, the face of his genesis, the face of his own person. He sees who he is. He recognizes himself. He's like, oh, yeah, that ugly guy. I know him. That's me. Maybe he didn't shave. Maybe his tie is on backwards. Maybe his hair is not in a good shape. And he looks and he sees, nah, that's fine. And he walks away. The minute he turns his back on it, he moves in the wrong direction. And he does not return. In fact, the verbal senses here is pretty interesting. He looks, complete action. He walks away. Forgets and he walks away. You know what that is? He starts and he continues. And the impact of that is ongoing. He continues to walk away. This, I don't believe, is a believer. There are those commentaries, and you may find some that says this is a believer. This is not a glance. 
He sees himself. He sees himself. He sees the reflection. He sees that something is not right. What does he do? Not for me. Walks away. Not interested. The minute he turns his back, he forgets what he has seen. That is not a believer. Why? Because James does describe the believer in verse 25. Notice what he says. But, yeah, we do have a contrast, a different person. The one who looks, and the word here is peer into. He bows forward to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Where does that come from? Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Being no yearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed. You know what he's saying? This guy, he looks and he sees himself. And oh man, he wants to change because he saw his own life in the law. The mirror is the word. And you are exposed to the word on a daily basis. And you see yourself, but you do not do anything about it. James says, there's a problem with you. You are like this guy who sees the face of his birth. He sees his own sin, but he still walks away not wanting to change his sin. Why? Because he cannot. He can't change himself. But the guy who comes to the law and he sees himself in the law, he's burdened by it. And he wants to change. This guy who acts upon what he sees, James says he is blessed in all he does. Going back to verse 12. Ever gone out of the house with your pajamas on? I don't think a lot of you would do that, but ever been in a moment of crisis? That minute you forget what you were doing, right? And you, you walk, you run. Maybe you were about to cut the other half of your hair and uh, the stove explodes. You're not going to sit there and, oh, I need to shave the other half. No, no, you're going to be running. And you forget. Get that your hair is not in a good shape. You're going to be standing outside talking about the explosion, right? And people are going to look at you. Is that a new hairstyle? I like it. No. I, I remember driving to, um, to seminary once, going down the hill, and there was an accident in the fast lane. And um, I don't know if she caused it or she was part of it, but there was a lady putting on a face, and she was part of the accident and you know what I mean by putting on the face right um, and my friend was asking me what if she makes a mistake and it just popped into my head if she's distracted by the accident and she only does one half of the lap or you know because she had to break hard Instead of it going straight across, it's now year over, over the year. Imagine the reaction when you walk into the, um, your work. Mm. Face painting. Maybe your, your, your daughter helped you this morning. You forget in the moment of crisis what you look like. Hence the word and perseveres. James is not moving away from the reality that when there's hardship... It shows who you are. This guy, he sees himself. He knows his sin. Doesn't do anything about it. He walks away. This is a really strong description of a person that departs. 
the one who sees and perseveres, the one who does. The interesting thing in Luke chapter 6, Matthew's, I think, chapter 7 is the parallel passage to that. There are those in Matthew that go out and say, Lord, Lord, did we not drive demons out? Did we not heal? Did we not prophesy in your name? Let's think about that. What does Jesus say? I never knew you. Hmm. When we think of doing, what are we thinking of? Doing those things. Being part of the kingdom. Working in a way that people can see. What is Jesus talking about? Having your heart set on him. That means trusting him. The things that people can't see. Being faithful to him. The thing that people can't maybe see as regularly when they're not around you. There has to be a change of heart before there's a change in action. You can come to church 24-7 and still not be saved. You can stand and sing in the worship team and still not be saved. You can be in a pulpit and still not be saved. How is that possible? Because the word has not penetrated the heart, but you know a lot of things. That is the danger of self-deception. You may say, well, how is it possible that a person can preach? and be There's a lot of testimonies of guys that got saved by their own preaching. One who walks in the path of righteousness, who's faithful to his God, is the one who is saved by the truth. One author says it this way, No truth of God stored in the mind will ever meet our needs until that truth gives birth to faith and faith gives birth to deeds. Lord, you are the sovereign savior of our souls. You change us. You make us into your image. This is a refining process. It's not quick and it's sometimes not easy. Lord, there are those here who have given up the walk because of circumstances in life. There are those here who just don't see the need to be faithful to you. There are those here who are not interested in loving you, who have never committed to a church, who has never showed their devotion to you in serving your people. Would you save them if they are not saved? Would you change their hearts and make them obedient, cause them to obey your word? We seek to be faithful. And those of us who are not sure of our salvation, bring confirmation, bring assurance. Those of us who are struggling with our faith, Lord, help us to be encouraged to know that you are the one who does the perfect work of salvation. And we can be assured as we look at your results in our life that you have saved us. Continue to change this church. Continue to change our lives as we are dependent upon you for your glory. Amen.